A very good morning to everybody. Some things about the operation of the Holy Spirit in the first century and in our day. Acts 19.1 And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And, John, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had said this, had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Uh, that was, it appears, uh, the beginning of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Uh, notice a couple of things. Um, these disciples in Ephesus, uh, rather similar to Apollos, had part of the story of Jesus, but not all of it. Uh, they had apparently picked up on the story as regards to John the Baptist, and he is prophesying that there would be a Messiah uh, at a, a later date, but they did not know who that Messiah would be. Uh, so <clears throat> when Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, in the case of Apollos, explains it to them, then they find out more information. I'd notice three things to note about these disciples of John at Ephesus. Um, please note, number one, John's baptism did not include the Spirit as a gift. When John baptized people in the Jordan River, uh, it was a baptism for repentance, the Bible says, but it did not include the Spirit as a gift. You recall that in Acts 2 and verse 38, when Peter stands before the Pentecost crowd, he calls on them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and then he adds, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is my understanding of the Scripture that everyone who is baptized into Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Uh, the distinction, of course, is disciples of John would not have been baptized into Jesus Christ because Jesus had not yet come to the earth and done his ministry and died on the cross at that point. Number two, so they were baptized, we read, in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, taking Acts 2.38 and 1 Corinthians 12.13 and other passages into account, we could suggest that when they were baptized this time, they received the Spirit as a gift. They received the indwelling of the Spirit. Then number three, Paul places his hands on them. You might notice that at the end of our reading. He places his hands on them and they receive miraculous gifts. Notice that the miraculous gifts would be as distinct from the Spirit as a gift. You see, everyone who has, who is baptized has a Spirit living in them, but not everyone who has a Spirit living in them has the miraculous gifts. And so the Apostle Paul, as an Apostle, uh, passes that gift on to them. And so that, that's one of the key passages for our understanding of how the Holy Spirit works uh, in the first century and how he works even today. Uh, there's some interesting things that occur in the uh, ministry of Paul in the city of Ephesus. Uh, he spends a lot of time there, and it appears to be an extremely effective work. Now, one of the funnier passages in Scripture, I suppose, would be the one found in Acts 19, beginning with verse 8. Uh, this tells us a lot about the state of Judaism in the city of Ephesus as well. 
And he entered the synagogue, we read, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We note, of course, Paul's pattern of going into a synagogue and reasoning uh, with them. Uh, so, uh, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, Paul changes uh, location and goes into the school hall of Tyrannus. This continues for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks notice that the Apostle Paul uh, perhaps rents this um, building that had been a school uh, maybe that the, maybe the school meets at a different time uh, I can picture the school perhaps meeting in the morning and Paul and his people taking over it in the afternoon or something like that he discusses reasons daily at the Hall of Tyrannus and does so for two years at least so that all the residents of Asia heard the word. Uh, my suggestion here is that Paul comes to the great city center of the area, uh, the city of Ephesus. He begins the church there, but then the gospel radiates out into the communities around, the villages and towns and the, the lesser cities, perhaps. Uh, that would be his missionary method. Now, in verse 11, we pick up on the sons of Sceva. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom was the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Uh, in some respects, this is a funny story, because you can picture these uh, seven sons of Sceva uh, using uh, the magic name of Jesus and hoping that that would help in their exorcism. And this individual that had... Uh, some, some spirit in him uh, overcomes all seven of them, beats them up, it seems, leaves them bloodied and uh, naked as they leave the, uh, the building. Um, it does tell us, tell us a few things about the state of Judaism in some parts of the empire. Uh, it appears uh, it, it's strange to see. Jewish people uh, um, uh, taking on the sort of superstitious ways. Uh, first of all, there would have been no priest in the city of Ephesus if you were strictly following the Jewish code. Uh, they, they wouldn't have been serving in the city of Ephesus. They would have been in the city of Jerusalem doing that, uh, in the temple. Uh, secondly, of course, what were they doing? Uh, calling on various magical names, including that of Jesus, trying to cast people, cast demons out of people. It does appear that the people of uh, the Jewish people of Ephesus had taken on a lot of their local culture. Uh, this would, of course, have been a thing that Paul would not have wanted his own people to do. So uh, we come then to Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 21, and the great riot at the city of Ephesus. Uh, this, too, is a fascinating study of what happens when, when the church becomes strong and influential in a community. 
Now after these events, we read, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, uh, saying, After I have been there, I must go also see Rome. Uh, and having sent, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So uh, Paul has this plan, we read of it in the book of Romans as well, to go on to Rome and meet the church there. But first of all, he wants to go back to Jerusalem. First of all, though, he stays in Ephesus. After that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, verse 23 tells us. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that only in Ephesus, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. You can hear uh, Paul's uh, sermons, perhaps, where he uh, suggests that idols of silver and gold and wood and that kind of thing are not real. Verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from our her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, uh, Demetrius' speech is an interesting mixture of uh, cold business sense and religion. Uh, he points out how great Artemis was. He points out how many people honor and revere her in Ephesus and the whole region. And he points out also how every time Paul makes a convert to Christianity, that would be one less customer for uh, idols, um, uh, figurines of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. Uh, this is a testament to the success of the early church in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Uh, it's a testament to how when people become Christians in large numbers, they even change the economy. In this instance, it is the economy that includes the sale of figurines of Artemis, but uh, you can imagine even today, if a large number of people in a community become Christians, and given that they are genuine Christians, that they really do live the Christian life, how that might change a city. Can you imagine policemen reduced to directing traffic through uh, 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 intersections when the electricity goes out and the traffic lights are going? Can you imagine them uh, hardly ever, if, if uh, rarely if ever, uh, handling a, a crime uh, like drunken and disorderly or uh, breaking and entering or holding up a 7-Eleven or something like that? Because so many people in the city are Christians and they would never do that. Can you imagine the alcohol industry basically collapsing in a town because nobody's getting drunk anymore? Can you imagine uh, uh, the oldest profession no longer being viable in a city or a town because so many people are Christians uh, that they uh, put their money into good and wholesome things. Uh, here is a testament then to uh, the city of Ephesus and the area around it and that so many people had become Christians that they were losing business. Now verse 28, when they heard this they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, they rush into that great theater, and you remember I showed you pictures of the theater. We're not to think of a theater as an enclosed building uh, that might hold uh, 50 or 200 people. This is that huge amphitheater that uh, we had seen pictures of earlier. So they gather into this amphitheater, but when Paul wished to go in among 
among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. I am fascinated with the Apostle Paul having enough courage to say, yes, I'll go talk to them. Well, it's a lynch-minded mob. They're not going to listen to reason. And if Paul, who is considered the problem, stands up and speaks to them, disaster would occur. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. The Asiarchs would be sort of like uh, the elders of the city, the city council, something like that. And what's being suggested there is that many of them, although they may not have been Christians, were certainly in favor of Paul and his friends. And so they said, don't do that. They may have known something about Paul's character and said, uh, if we know Paul, he's going to try and go speak to that crowd. Uh, verse 32 is a great description of a riot mob uh, uh, in action. Now some cried out one thing, some, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now that's a great description of rioting. Uh, I, I picture people getting together and saying, hey, this is a great party. Uh, why are we here? Uh, and they might have shouted their own slogans regarding uh, their own um, uh, problems or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I'd like to notice um, as we read this, the use of the word assembly in verse 32. Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly. Now the assembly is in the amphitheater that we've mentioned before. Uh, it was a huge crowd, but this word assembly is the Greek word ekklesia. It is a word that is often used for church. Uh, now I, I, I think we all realize that the word church does not and never does uh, in scripture refer to a building. Uh, a building, uh, a church building or a cathedral or anything like that, uh, it doesn't do that. But notice here that the assembly is uh, a rioting mob. Um, the word ecclesia is a generic term. Uh, it is a term that describes any gathering of people coming together for any purpose. They could have come together to watch a play or an athletic contest, or it could have been a political gathering. It could have been any kind of thing. Often in the New Testament, of course, we might suggest that there is an ecclesia of Christ or an ecclesia of God, a church of God or a church of Christ. And so what you have there is a, a, a gathering with a specific purpose, and that is to serve and honor and worship Jesus Christ. But many times in uh, Greek literature and even in the Bible, it's a word that's simply used for a crowd gathering together. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. I suppose that the problem with Alexander standing up and speaking and being a, a, a Jew was that the crowd recognized that, that Jews, just like Christians, uh, do not worship idols. And so uh, if they are angry at Paul for preaching to people that idols are not something you should worship, and certainly so not something you should uh, buy from a craftsman that a Jew is no better than a Christian in that regard. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? We finally get the uh, 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 leader of the city of Ephesus, the town clerk, and he quietens them down. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, a present when a riot has occurred. I don't know that that's quite as common a thing in the United States as it is in some places. Uh, I have been uh, around several riots in Zimbabwe. I remember one particular occasion I was in downtown Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, and uh, a 
a well-known political figure in Southern Africa named Samora Michel. He was president of the country of Mozambique, had, had, been, had perished in a plane accident. The plane had come down in South Africa, hit some mountains um, in that particular country, and there was a suspicion, I don't know if there was any evidence of, of it or not, there was a suspicion that there was some sabotage that had gone on. And so what we have there was a lot of people thinking the South Africans had sabotaged the plane and that their hero had died. Well, uh, at the one end of the city of Harare is the uh, University of Zimbabwe. And I, I remember that uh, thousands of students from the university poured out to the university and made their way down into downtown Harare. Uh, I remember seeing this crowd moving down one of the major streets in the city and I backed into a sort of enclave, you know, where uh, a store had um, uh, mannequins of, uh, I don't know, uh, people wearing different kinds of clothes for, uh, the, for, for what they were selling inside the store. And I watched the students, uh, uh, thousands of them moving. They looked straight ahead. Uh, they, they, they were fixed on their destination. They didn't see me at all. But I remember thinking to myself, I'm glad I wasn't the one that made them angry. They made their way down to the South African embassy and they, um, oh, destroyed some property and scared some people to death and that kind of thing. But I remember that this was a crowd that you realized you couldn't reason with until they just um, uh, worked their energy off uh, and finally um, became exhausted. So finally we have, after two hours of shouting, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, a town clerk. Now, in verse 35, the town clerk expresses a conviction that it's his. It's not necessarily Paul's or Luke's. But he says, men of Athens, do you not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Apparently the legend had it that uh, a stone from Artemis herself had fallen from the sky and landed at Ephesus and that was her bequeathing her uh, benefits and her blessings to that city. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. Uh, notice that the clerk suggests that although Paul and his companions might not believe in the idols, they're not disrespectful of these other religions. They are Christian in the way that they express their ideas. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it, should, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. And I'd like to point out that for the second time we're using the word ecclesia. The regular assembly refers to the time when the city council gathered together at an appointed time uh, and place and where uh, city business could be conducted. And if they felt like they needed to complain about something regarding the Apostle Paul, they could come in and in a civilized way talk about it, you see. Verse 44, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And once again, we see the use of the word uh, ecclesia. My point is to simply say that, uh, number one, the word ecclesia has at its base the meaning uh, a gathering of people uh, together for a purpose. And when we refer to it in a religious sense, you might suggest that here are God's people, Christians gathering together to, to honor and worship and praise God. Now, uh, here is that um, great riot in Ephesus. Um, 
It says, the, the, the text says that after that, he spends three more months in Macedonia and Achaia. That would be the area across the Aegean. Uh, Macedonia would be Philippi, Achaia would be Corinth, and perhaps he even went to cities and towns in between. Uh, Luke does not give us a lot of details. What Paul does then is he comes back across the Aegean to Asia Minor, and we see him in Acts 20, beginning with verse 1, uh, coming to the city of Troas. Uh, now, if you had seen that map again, that is north of Ephesus, uh, follow with me if you would, Acts 20, beginning with verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia, Macedonia being the area around Philippi. When he had gone through these regions and given them uh, much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and then a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So notice that this is a fairly substantial missionary party, and we have noted several times that the Apostle Paul does this as a practice. He brings with him some young men whom he mentors and develops, and so here they are, this missionary party. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Note again that this is one of the wee passages of the book of Acts where Luke also is included. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, here we come to a key passage that tells us an awful lot about um, early Christian worship. Uh, this might even be, you could suggest, a, a snapshot of early Christian worship. Paul and his companions remain in the city of Troas, it seems, purposefully for seven days. In other words, a week. Uh, and verse 7 uh, picks up on that thought. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, perhaps the thing that we remember most about that passage is that last part. Paul preached until midnight. I remember saying to some friends of mine some time ago that I had biblical precedent for preaching until midnight, and of course I pointed out the Paul story. Uh, they sort of rolled their eyes, as uh, uh, people might do when a preacher suggests he can preach uh, a longer time if he could, and one of them said, well, brother Stan, uh, that's fine. You can preach until midnight as long as you can also raise people from the dead. Uh, that would be as reference to Eutychus who fell out the window a little later in this story. Please note that the purpose of gathering together on the first day of the week was to break bread. This is a purpose clause in the Greek. Uh, it says, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together and then notice to break bread. You could translate that in order to or for the purpose of breaking bread. Uh, it's interesting that the purpose of gathering together in Troas on that Sunday was specifically for the Lord's Supper. It was not specifically to hear Paul preach, although that is indeed what happened. My suspicion is that they did other things too. They sang hymns, they prayed, they probably had the offering, but the great purpose of that uh, day and its activities was to remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper in what we think of as a communion today. Paul talked to them, we read, uh, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Actually, it gets worse, because after the incident of poor Eutychus uh, falling out of the window, we uh, see that Paul uh, talks more 
to that congregation. Notice verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. It appears to have been nighttime. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken dead. I uh, am comforted by the fact that I'm not the first preacher to have had somebody fall asleep in his message. Uh, here, someone so good as the Apostle Paul has exactly that. I love the description of Eutychus, not just dozing a little bit, not just um, uh, falling asleep for a moment, but going into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. We don't know how young Eutychus is. Is he a 12-year-old boy? Uh, is he a teenager? We just don't know. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took, a, took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. What an extraordinary night that must have been. Uh, I wonder if young Eutychus wasn't teased uh, uh, a lot of times uh, about what had taken place that night. Uh, you know, uh, uh, please don't sit in the window, Mr. Eutychus. Uh, uh, move um, to the inner aisle, if you would, and sit down there. Uh, in verse uh, 7, uh, of this particular passage uh, it says they gathered together to break bread uh, it's hard to believe that the church met that Sunday specifically for potluck lunch uh, it's an important um, thing to have fellowship amongst Christians but in this instance the reference is to the Lord's Supper we note that in verse 11 that is following the uh, uh, the fall of Eutychus and Paul raising him from the dead uh, that they do gather together and have a meal uh, this time not for spiritual nutrition but for physical nutrition before Paul of course, then leaves uh, early the next morning. I'd like to, uh, what, what we do then is we come to uh, one of the most significant uh, passages um, in scripture regarding Paul's ministry. This is found in the book of Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. Uh, I'll set it up and then that'll probably be all I have time to do in this session. But we read this, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and call the elders of the church to him. Uh, Paul is making his way back to uh, the land of Judea, and he appears to be in something of a hurry, so when he gets to Miletus, the port town, uh, Ephesus is inland a couple of miles, he sends a message to Ephesus, and the elders are supposed to come down to Miletus. Uh, there Paul can talk to them, and then he can simply get back into the ship and continue his journey. So verse 18, and they came down to him, and he said to them, and he begins to make his speech to these elders. It's a remarkable scene and it's one that I would like to read in the next session because Paul uh, uh, Paul exposes a great deal of his attitudes and his methods when it comes to ministry uh, we might say to ourselves why would we be interested in that and and I guess my response to that would be number one anybody who's interested in doing ministry should probably learn from the great uh, the great missionary and church builder himself, the Apostle Paul. But the second side of it is those of us who benefit from somebody's ministry, those of us who might be, if I can use the term, ordinary members of the church and not necessarily preachers, would pe be people who would need to at least know how to recognize a great ministry, how to recognize somebody who's doing the right things. Because frequently when we think about ministry and when I hear people talk about what a preacher should be doing and should not be doing, uh, frequently what they say 
comes out of a great deal of ignorance or even selfishness. Uh, they feel like this preacher should be serving them uh, in, in, in the way that they want, and they're not necessarily looking at Scripture to find out what the Lord believes that a minister should do. So this is a significant passage when we consider the way uh, Paul approached his own ministry in what was probably his greatest ministry, the city of Ephesus. So I appreciate you hanging in with me this day. I wish you a good day and God's blessings. Goodbye.